Um, I'm going to begin with an apology, <laughs> <laughs> and it is to um, Doug and Tom. I have many good things to say about the Egal report. I did not say them here. <laughs> I will say them in the finished version of this. I took this as an opportunity to try and think through the critical frameworks. Um, so bear that in mind. As a historian, it's not every day that the archival records in which you've spent nearly 30 years researching become the focus of public political discussion, from the pages of the press <laughs> to the prime minister's office. For the past almost three decades, I've been working with and writing queer history based on the court records of same-sex offenses uh, between men in Ontario from 1880 to 1940. So this is what we historians do, like we just like purpose little spot, right? Um, what has focused media political attention on these records is, of course, the call for the federal government to review and potentially pardon or expunge or cancel, there are different ways of going about this, um, the records of those charged or convicted of homosexual offenses, part of the broader process of what um, has been called the gay apology. Now, I've been continually struck by the disjuncture between the public political discussion of these records, um, their extent, their content, and what I know to be in them. So much so that I have wondered by times whether those involved have actually ever seen a historical court record of curse of decency or buggery. So given how so much of the um, campaign for the gay apology rests upon historical documentation, um, these problems are not insignificant. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning. Um, the paper or the paper in, in progress also has another argument to, uh, to make about why the gay apology now, and that takes us into some of the stuff that Patrick was talking about into homonationalism and into hegemony, but I'm not going to hit you with that today. We're just going to talk about what did I find in my court records? Um, and I'm hoping it's not going to be too disjointed because I'm cutting and pasting as I go, so keep that in mind, please. The challenges presented by the historical court records are numerous and varied, and the idea of federal bureaucrats with little or likely no historical training rummaging through old court documents strikes me as both comical and frightening. <laughs> An example, one internal government report indicates that the oldest case they've located so far dates back to October 1939. I've got it right here. It took them quite a while to find, it took me 30 seconds to find in my own files. <laughs> but why 1939? How is this possible when Buggery entered Canadian law in 1859 and gross indecency in 1890? In my own research, I've turned up close to 400 cases involving nearly 800 men, and this just for the period of 1880 to 1940, and just for Ontario alone, right? One could do this for other provinces and jurisdictions. It is also true that the surviving records are fragmentary and incomplete. Many contain nothing more than the names, the dates, and the decision. In many instances, there are no depositions or trial transcripts to reveal the details of the case. Um, that said, what does one find uh, in the court documents? Who do we find in the documents? Is it someone who led an otherwise exemplary life, save for the misfortune of getting caught up in the state's draconian anti-gay apparatus? Sometimes. And I suspect that it is this respectable homosexual most Canadians imagine Justin will be apologizing to on their behalf. But in reality, of course, this figure doesn't actually surface very often in the court records because he was leading a private, discreet life and therefore didn't come to the attention of the law and then doesn't turn up in the archival uh, records. Who then do we find in these documents? And I'm just going to give you like a, a, a pastiche, a sense of what, what 
what you would find if you were to, to look at them. They were men who used their physical strength to force themselves upon others, often young boys. Or it might have been a man who used the allure of his body, the promise of sex, to entice another man whom he then robbed or beat up. There were cases in which men used their positions of power within institutions, from schools to churches and the Children's Aid Society, to gain sexual access to male youth. They might be cases in which boys and male youth traded sexual favors with adult men in exchange for money, admission to the theater, a hockey stick. A good many cases involved so-called public sex in parks, laneways, and laboratories, which often involved more than two men at any one time. In short, I think what we find in the court records is almost the mirror opposite of Pierre Trudeau's respectable homosexual couple, you know, the two consenting adults in the privacy of their bedroom. What we find in place of consent is sometimes coercion. Along with adults, we find many boys and male youth. In addition to couples, there was group sex in place of privacy. Sex often occurred in public. What is often referred to in discussions of the gay apology as the obstacles thrown up by the historical records turn out to be more like an evidentiary interpretive brick wall. Given the nature, I'm just going to give you some examples of this to how it plays out in the records. Given the nature of the legal contest, right, this is going to be, I guess, self-evident, sexual encounters that may in fact have been consensual were presented in court as something else. Similarly, sexual encounters that involved coercion were presented as having involved consent. In many cases, the court relied on little more than the police testimony as the, the way to piece together like what happened um, in a case to, to establish the narrative and to convict the men. Because gross indecency criminalized all sexual relations between male persons, whether in public or private, regardless of the ages involved, regardless of the, the circumstances of the sexual encounter, it was very common for both parties to be convicted, to be punished. So another co a couple of examples. In a case that involved an adult man who used his position of, um, within an institution to facil facilitate sex with the male youth, the youth was not regarded as a victim, but as what the law termed an accomplice to sexual crime. And many of those boys were sent to reformatories and training schools while the men went off to jail farms, penitentiaries, prisons. Keeping in mind this was a period before the law drew distinctions about the misuse of positions of trust and authority, the question becomes, are we apologizing to both the man and the youth? In cases involving coercion or violence, both the victim and aggressor were often sent to jail. What happens when, in the he said versus he said of a trial, we can't tell them apart? And you can't, often can't. Are we apologizing to both? 20 years ago, I wrote that the methodological and interpretive challenges presented by the court, court records make it nearly impossible to reveal the truth of individual cases. And yet, the review of the historical record for the purposes of pardons, expungement, cancellation, relies on the review of individual cases. Good luck with that. An equally formidable challenge posed by the historical documents hovers over the gay in the gay apology, that is, over the question of identity. Gross indecency and buggery did not criminalize sexual identities. They criminalized sexual acts. There is over three decades or more of queer historiography, including my own, that has marshaled evidence to demonstrate that many, if not most, men who engaged in sexual relations with other men in the 19th century and for a large part of the 20th century did not adopt a gay or homosexual identity. So what I'm trying to say here is that for much of the at least pre-1969 period, the very subject for whom the gay apology is designed cannot be found. 
There is some acknowledgement in the discussion that a blanket pardon, which is one of the options, at least for a point, would be riddled with problems. These problems of consent, about age, about, uh, about uh, coercion. But what about the blanket apology? When Justin stands up in the House of Commons to deliver the apology, at least the part of it pertaining to men convicted before 1969, is he going to take us through all of these distinctions that I'm running over here very quickly? Are queer people themselves ready to really reckon with the queer past, warts and all? Are most straight Canadians prepared to apologize to, for instance, the men engaged in a group masturbation scene in the dank, stinking toilet underground at Union Station? Or what about to the mild-mannered Boy Scout leader who penciled on a piece of birch bark a love note to the young object of his affection? These are the cases that turned up in my research, including the little piece of birch bark. <laughs> my fear is not. And this brings me to the word that I uh, mentioned earlier that, that does stick in my craw a bit, rehabilitation. I understand that it has legal and quasi-legal meanings, but it also can mean more generally, and I'm talking about how this circulates in the public sphere, particularly in, in the, the public discussions of this, can mean to restore a person to health or normal life. And it is that normalizing aspect of rehabilitation that bothers me. I think we see it at work in the case of Everett Clifford, and I'm hoping we have just a vague familiarity with, I mean, with that, I don't want to... Um, in John Ibbotson's <clears throat> first profile of Clifford in the Globe, we learn that, quote, he hooked up with teenagers. He would offer a couple of bucks for the hand jobs there, typically were unoffered. We further learn that Clifford liked to hang around boxing and wrestling matches and visited local, local swimming pools. He also allowed young men on his bus for free, even slipped them a $2 bill now and then in exchange for their favors later, later on. He also had a car. This is still Ibbotson. He also had a car. The younger guys loved to go for a ride in it. They'd find a remote road, have a beer, get to talking, the talk would turn to sex, and Clifford would eventually propose they masturbate together." Unquote. So in many ways, Clifford's case uh, sounds remarkably similar to many of the cases that, uh, from much earlier in the century that turned up in uh, my research. But look what happens in subsequent reports on, on Clifford's case, and this is again from the press. We're told that Clifford's only crime was, quote, that he had sex, that he sought out sex with men that he spent time in prison, quote, because he refused to stop having sex with men, that he was sentenced to indefinite detention for repeatedly having sex with men. Teenagers, the exchange of money, bus and car rides, the rituals of homosexual seduction all disappear from the story. How much of Clifford's rehabilitation rests upon the downplaying of the earlier uh, components of his sexual life? Could this be done with other cases from the pre-1969 past, cases like those in my research? Probably. But I, for one, am not interested in rehabilitating the queer past. It is historically problematic and, for me, politically unpalatable. None of the nearly 800 men who turned up in my research get to have a say in whether they wish to be rehabilitated or apologized to. Maybe many of these men wouldn't feel they did anything that requires rehabilitation or redemption. Politically, the rehabilitation of the queer past seems a lot like the periodic calls by gay business owners and associations to purge the church Wellesley village of street people and sex workers. It's a cleanup operation, a sweep of the past, dressing it up and making it look respectable for its appearance on the national stage of apology. Just as the Canadian state once believed it was necessary to purge the government of queer people, 
it is now necessary for the government to purge, by apologizing for, the historical record of its past practices. How else to maintain in the present its image, which is to say its political future, as guarantor and protector of minority rights, diversity, and an inclusive Canada? And here is where the government and the gay agenda conveniently overlap. For a homonormative-driven politics, predicated upon the respectable, nation-loving queer citizen, needs to erase or suppress the historical equation between homosexuality and criminality. But queer history, like queer desire itself, is a messy mix of pleasure and pain, of giving and taking, of identity and non-identity, of recognition and repudiation, of saints and sinners. The lesbian poet, Brenda Brooks, in a lovely meditation on queer history, once called it the stubborn, willful evidence. No amount of apologizing, pardoning, expunging, or rehabilitating will ever change that. Thank you.